Step into 2024 with confidence thanks to Manscaped, where resolutions are met and hairs are neatly kept. As the new year approaches, why not make self-improvement a breeze by keeping your body well-groomed? Introducing Manscaped's Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, the ultimate all-inclusive kit designed to help you feel clean-cut and confident as you should. Featuring the Powerhouse Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra, this next-gen trimmer ensures precision and ease when tackling your toughest hairs. So kick off 2024 with a trim above the rest, then use code HuddyHistorian at Manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. Now I know that with New Year's right around the corner, having a New Year's resolution related to looking good is on everyone's mind, including my own. From working out maybe one more day a week to eating more healthy foods, to keeping my face and body neatly groomed for the missus, I know that 2024 is going to be my best year yet. And with a baby on the way and with the world in total chaos, hey, I might as well look good while we embrace it all together. And fortunately, I have Manscaped to thank for helping me achieve that resolution. And now, the Performance Package 5.0 Ultra is here, and let me tell you, it's got futuristic tendencies. Included in this bundle is the brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra, the Weed Whacker 2.0 Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, and the essential aftercare products like the Crop Soother Ball and Aftershave Lotion and Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant and two free gifts. Their fifth-generation lawnmower features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. And did I mention that it's waterproof too? Manscaped also threw in two free gifts, the Boxers 2.0 and the Shed 2.0 toiletry bag. Now, resolutions may come and go, but a well-groomed you is here to stay with Manscaped's latest and greatest. So start the new year right, because when you look good, you feel good. Manscaped, helping you sculpt the best version of yourself for the new year ahead. New year, new you, and definitely a new trimmer. Manscaped's got your grooming resolutions covered. And now, get 20% off and free shipping with the code HuddyHistorian at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use code HuddyHistorian, H-U-D-D-Y-H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N. Happy New Year to your balls. Supplemental episode, Marshals of the Empire, Louis-Nicolas Davout. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all are having a lovely Christmas and holiday season. I wanted to give you guys one last episode before the start of the new year, and while I am working on getting out the end of the War of the Fourth Coalition, I figured we could finally get to our supplemental episode, as promised, on Marshal Davout, arguably Napoleon's greatest and most skilled marshal, though, as we'll see, perhaps his most underutilized. And while I know it may seem strange to talk about Davout so early in our little series within a series, I thought it made sense given his legendary performance at Auerstedt, and then the renown he would also add at Eilau and Friedland in the coming months. So, let's just get the pretext out of the way, and give the man his due, while he's fresh off of one of the greatest military victories not only of his career, but in French history. Louis-Nicolas Davout was born on May 10, 1770, in the small village of Anneau in the department of Yonne, but at the time, it was part of the greater province of Champagne. 
And so for any wine lovers, yes, that is another reason to stick around for this episode. Now, his father, Jean-Francois, was a cavalry officer, while his mother, Francois Adelaide, was a housewife. Now, while Davout grew up as a member of the nobility with the lineage that was able to be traced back to as far as the Crusades, his family was poor financially, and Davout knew that if he were to advance in life, he would need to follow in the footsteps of his ancestors and join the military. So at the age of 15, he enrolled at the brienne la chateau before entering the École Militaire in 1785. Now, for those of you who want a refresher on a young Napoleon, those were the two schools that he also attended as a young student, and Davout, only 10 months younger than Napoleon, had just missed being Bonaparte's classmate. Nevertheless, the two were so close in age and career experience that it made for an unwavering relationship, and as we'll see, Davout was absolute in his devotion and loyalty to Napoleon. Their shared experiences in revolution, rise, and campaigning only furthered that bond. Now, graduating in early 1788, Davout was then commissioned as a lieutenant to the local Royal Champagne Cavalry Regiment. But when the French Revolution broke out just over a year later, the teenage Davout, who had seen the devastating effects of the Ancien Régime's income disparity firsthand, enthusiastically embraced its principles. But as a result, he was forced to resign his royal commission, and he was then arrested and spent six weeks in prison. So with France in chaos, and with little prospects of resuming his military career on behalf of Bourbon France, Davout would end up joining a local militia, and wound up being elected its deputy commander, lieutenant colonel of the 3rd Battalion of the Yon Volunteers. His service there would prove invaluable with war at France's doorstep. In 1792, the French Revolutionary Wars began, and Davout served France with vigor, and, as it would turn out, with immense talent. Sent to the northeast in the French advance in the Low Countries, Davout proved to be a skilled and able battlefield commander, and he earned plaudits back in Paris for trying his best to dissuade French General Charles de Maurier from defecting to the coalition forces during the Battle of Nerviden in 1793, though he was not successful at the attempt. However, as a silver lining for both himself and for France, Davout was promoted to Brigadier General at the young age of 23, mirroring Napoleon's rise in the ranks along with many other young officers in a French army that was now beginning to embrace the benefits of a soldier's skill rather than his birthright. But unfortunately for Davout, his promotion was short-lived because of that said birth. You see, while Davout was a skilled soldier and, as we have already seen, certainly deserved his generalship based on his talent alone, he was also a noble, and during the years of the terror, having any traces of nobility in one's bloodline meant that you were barred from any form of government office, military included. So, right after he had achieved the command of a lifetime at such a young age, he was required to renounce it and went back home. But only for a year, because the terror, like most parts of the French Revolution, would end up eating itself. Now, by 1794, Davout was back in command of a cavalry brigade in the Mosul in Germany. His daring raids in the Mosul led to him being noticed by the commanding officer, old French General Louis Dachet, which he then was able to parlay into a meeting with another young rising military star, artillery officer Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, ironically, for as loyal and as important as Davout was to Napoleon, Bonaparte initially was not impressed with Davout after their first meeting, calling him uncouth and a damn brute. Napoleon was also turned off by Davout's cold demeanor, something which would come to be a defining trait of the man who would become known to history as the Iron Marshal, and also something that ultimately led to his own downfall. But Napoleon did trust Dachet, and he agreed to bring Davout along with him on the Egyptian campaign. Davout's campaign in Egypt was tough. He caught dysentery while in Cairo and faced numerous skirmishes while on the march with Dachet in Upper Egypt, 
which is southern Egypt geographically, but called Upper Egypt as it stood for the head of the Nile, which of course flows north. Now, he was an integral contributor during the first battle of Abu Kir, helping man the siege trenches and driving the attacking Turks out of the town. And this was also one of the first times that he caught Napoleon's eye personally, and Davu was commended for his actions in the battle, having turned 29 years old just two months earlier. A year later, Napoleon promoted him to the position of Inspector General of Cavalry, and also introduced him to his future wife, Louise, who was the sister of Charles Leclerc from the doomed Leclerc expedition, and the sister-in-law of his wife, Pauline Bonaparte, who was the younger sister of Napoleon. Did we follow all that? Great. Now, Davout was a devoted husband to Louise, and the marriage was described as a happy one. The couple would go on to have eight children, though only four would survive into adulthood. And indeed, during the few times of peace over the following 15 years, Davout preferred to stay home with his family and care for his estate, rather than attend fancy banquets and parties like many of his peers. It was, perhaps apropos, since his personality was described as cold, distant, and introverted. He was greatly respected by his troops and contemporaries, but also greatly disliked by them personally, and he would often clash with them in the coming years. Now, obviously, we know about the debacle with Bernadotte, but he had poor relationships with some of the other marshals as well, namely Berthier, who he often saw as nothing more than Napoleon's puppet, and Murat, who he believed was more interested in his social standing rather than leading men into battle. Nevertheless, his loyalty to Napoleon was ironclad, and as the Napoleonic Wars began, Davout would enter into the legends on his own merits. Now, after returning from Egypt, Davout would not take part in Napoleon's second Italian campaign, where his friend, Dache, met his fate at Marengo, though he was put in charge of troops in the northern camps at Bruges near Boulogne, where the Army of the Coast was training for their invasion of Britain. It would be here where Davout would cultivate his reputation as a strict disciplinarian, drilling the soldiers daily in the art of war, and sacking many commanders who did not meet his almost impossibly high standards. Many of his soldiers despised Davout's incessant drilling, marching, and discipline, but in the coming campaigns, these lessons proved invaluable in their successes once Napoleon became emperor. And as we know, this army of the coast would become the Grande Armée, and Davout would lead many of these troops that he personally drilled into battle and into the history books. Now, after Napoleon became emperor in December of 1804, Davout was named one of the original 18 marshals, as well as being the youngest of the bunch but his naming was met with particular hostility amongst many of his older peers, who believed it was because Davout was married into the Napoleonic family that he got the high honor. Davout had yet to command anything more than a brigade in battle, but Napoleon was confident that he had found a diamond in the rough, and in the coming months, Davout would prove that the promotion was not only warranted, but likely long overdue. In 1805, Davout would become commander of the legendary Third Corps of the Grande Armée, and he would get his first taste of leading the men he personally trained into battle during the Auschwitz campaign of the War of the Third Coalition. Now, in the days leading up to the Battle of Auschwitz, if we remember back to episode 34, Davout marched his Third Corps 70 miles in two days and arrived just in time to shore up Napoleon's right flank, allowing the Emperor to launch his decisive assault on the coalition center and crush the combined Austrian-Russian army. Davout's men suffered heavy casualties and bore the brunt of the Russian attack from their left flank, but their holding of the line proved crucial in shoring up victory for the French, and Davout earned further plaudits for his third corps' discipline and bravery against heavy odds in enemy fire. After the battle, and subsequent victory in the War of the Third Coalition, Davout returned his estate and enjoyed some well-earned R&R, before returning back to the battlefield in the War of the Fourth Coalition with his victory at the Battle of Auerstedt.
Now, seeing as how we just discussed that battle at length in the second to last episode, I'm not really going to go into too much detail on it today, so please refer back to episode 37 if you want to learn more about that battle in more detail. But needless to say, Davu and his third corps, outnumbered more than two to one, decisively defeated the Prussian main army, led by the Duke of Brunswick, and gave Napoleon a victory he could have only dreamed of. It was here where Davu earned his nickname as the Iron Marshal, as well as the title of Duke of Auerstedt for the incomparable victory. But it was also here where his lifelong hatred of Marshal Bernadotte would commence for Bernadotte's failure to assist Davu in battle, despite seeing the smoke from the cannons only a few miles away. Now, Napoleon from this moment on went so far as to basically trust Davu with his life, praising him with his everlasting gratitude and all but proclaiming him as the best and most important marshal, and he gave Davu and his third corps the honor of being the first troops to enter Berlin in victory during the city's fall. Davu would later prove his worth and tenacity in the coming battles of Eilau and Friedland, but I don't want to go into too much detail in those battles either, as we'll be discussing them in our next episode to wrap up the War of the Fourth Coalition. Speaking of which, after the Treaty of Tilsit and the subsequent creation of the Duchy of Warsaw, Davu was named as its governor-general, and he oversaw the recruitment and training of Polish troops, many of whom would become integral soldiers in the upcoming War of the Fifth Coalition. And once that war broke out, Davu left Poland and rejoined his Third Corps, leading a successful, though costly, retreat across the battlefields of Regensburg, in which he was nearly completely encircled. However, because he was able to escape, Two days later, he would help pin the Austrians at Ekmul before Napoleon sent for the final assault to win the battle. Ekmul would turn the tide of the war in favor for the French, and it would also be the culmination of the French counterattack known as the Four-Day Campaign. However, the following month, Davu would be unable to assist the French at the Battle of Aspern Essling, as he was struck dealing with bridge building behind the Danube. It was a crucial absence, as the French lost the battle in some 20,000 men, including Marshal Jean Lain, though we'll get to that in a few more episodes as well. However, in the French counterattack at Wagram, Davu would distinguish himself again by commanding the right wing, a post he has now become almost synonymous with. Criticized by Napoleon for being slow to attack, Davu purposely inched his men along to withstand the Austrian warning attack before slowly closing in on their left flank. After some time, it broke, and they fled in disarray. Davu's assault on the Austrian position was the moment that won the Battle of Wagram, and it would further add to his near-sterling resume. Applauded again for his efforts in battle, Napoleon bestowed Davu with the title of Prince of Ekmol, following the war's conclusion in October of 1809. Now, after the War of the Fifth Coalition, there was an unusual era of peace in Europe. Well, at least for a few years, but Davu used it to become an effective administrator in the Hanseatic cities, of which he became governor-general. He helped to improve the administration of the cities, weed out corruption, and to draft more men into the French army. In 1810, Davout accompanied Napoleon to meet Marie-Louise, his second wife, before being tasked with producing and training the majority of the army, who would soon be on the move into Russia. Officially named the Corps of Observation of the Elba, Davout was entrusted to get his army ready for what would become one of the largest invasions in human history. Davu would be put in command of the First Corps, a single army that was some 70,000 strong and was compared to the Imperial Guard with how well-trained and disciplined it was. Now, to put that number into perspective, Davu's First Corps was as large as the entire army that Napoleon commanded at the Battle of Austerlitz some seven years earlier. 
After leaving Vilnius in modern-day Lithuania, Davu won a decisive battle at Sultanovka, but he was unable to annihilate the army completely, allowing for the Russian escape. Many of his men would die of disease and hunger, but he was able to get them to Smolensk. By now, however, Davu's personality, coupled with his own battlefield brilliance, was beginning to rub many of the other marshals the wrong way. Most of them were keen to see him lose a battle or perhaps even be killed so that he could get off his proverbial high horse, and it was rumored that even Napoleon was growing weary of Davu's shtick, with the emperor siding with other marshals in the numerous spats Davu had with them in the Imperial War Council. At the famous Battle of Borodino, Davu had wanted to employ his patented encirclement from the right flank, but he was rebuffed by Napoleon and ordered to attack head-on. While the French won the battle, it was at immense cost. The archetypal Pyrrhic victory, only six weeks later, the French would leave Moscow and make their deadly retreat back to France. Davout, who by now was almost universally shunned amongst his contemporaries, was put in charge of the rear guard, but he was criticized by Napoleon for moving too slowly and forcing other marshals, namely Ney, to come to his rescue as Russian counterattacks decimated the French ranks, particularly at the Battle of Krasnoy. Davout would also lose his marshal's baton in the battle, something which enraged Napoleon, and the two would not meet again until Napoleon's return from his first exile on Elba, and Davout would be posted as the military governor of Hamburg for the duration of the war. Davout's fall from grace was something that affected not only himself, but also the empire. Davout would be left in Hamburg and was not present at the momentous Battle of Leipzig, an absence which Napoleon surely missed, and his presence and military brilliance on the battlefield and what it could have meant for the French chances is something historians continue to ponder over to this very day. Still, Davout would command his units in Hamburg during the siege from the Sixth Coalition, and he would hold out only until after Napoleon's first abdication, surrendering on the direct orders from King Louis XVIII. He would enact brutal reprisals on the citizenry for their suspected treachery, and it was reported that the city's population was halved by the time that Davout left to return to France for his mandated retirement. But once the Bourbons were restored on the throne, Davout was openly critical of them and despised their return. Even despite not having spoken to Napoleon since their return from Russia, once news of the Emperor's return from Elba reached Davout, he rushed to greet him and was one of the first to meet Napoleon upon his arrival, repledging his allegiance immediately. But Napoleon, in a repeat of his decision to leave Davout out of the Leipzig campaign, did so again by naming Davout as the Minister of War, an office which would remain in Paris. Thus, Davout would be largely absent from the critical 100 Days campaign, save for his spirited defense of Paris after the victorious coalition powers descended on the city. Davout's absence at the final Napoleonic Battle of Waterloo is, like Leipzig, hotly debated amongst historians, as it was theorized that had he, instead of Marshal Grouchy, been positioned on Napoleon's right, as he had nearly always been, the outcome of the battle would have turned out differently. But hypotheticals are for the losers, as they say, and Davout was left to deal with the brunt of the coalition forces as they approached and ultimately took Paris. Now, Davout likely would have fought to the last man had he not received orders from the provincial government led by Joseph Fouché to negotiate with the invading nations and save Paris the destruction that it likely would have faced like so many of the cities that Davout had passed through while on campaign over the previous decade. But while Davout had initially urged Napoleon to continue to fight on, with the walls closing in on all sides, he met with the emperor in Paris and encouraged him to abdicate for the second and final time. 
Napoleon would eventually relent, though in later years he would bitterly blame Davout for being more loyal to France than to him, and that he had also betrayed him like so many others. In reality, though, Davout had been Napoleon's strongest supporter, and I find it hard to believe that, maybe other than Josephine, there was anyone in Napoleon's life who was as loyal to him as Marshal Davout. Nevertheless, Davout did support the abdication, albeit begrudgingly, and in the end, he helped ensure Napoleon's safe passage to Rochefort, where he would begin his second exile, this time thousands of miles away at St. Helena. After the full restoration of the Bourbons, Davout knew that he'd likely face prosecution from a hostile monarchy that knew he despised them. Stripped of his titles and forced into exile, Davout only wanted his generals and soldiers to be spared from punishment for the orders that he had sent. Initially, the government agreed, but after he was removed from command and replaced by Marshal MacDonald, the Bourbons reneged on their promise and prosecutions were indeed held. This was true even for some of the marshals, namely Marshal May, who was executed by firing squad despite Davout's testimonies to his innocence. In the end, though, Davout would retire and he would have his titles restored some years later in 1817. But even with his reputation and legacy restored, Davout would not be long for this world. In 1821, his eldest daughter died and left him grief-stricken. Unable to cope with the grief and shunning of life at court, he died at his estate in Paris in July of 1823 of tuberculosis at the age of 53. He was, without a doubt, the greatest of Napoleon's marshals and a man whose military legacy lives on in French history for all time. But Davout was a man whose reputation as the Iron Marshal likely left him off the battlefield of some of the most important engagements where he was needed most. Indeed, it can be said that his best qualities as a strict disciplinarian and military man were the catalysts that led to his, as well as Napoleon's, downfall. So we'll leave Davout here for today. Though we'll certainly be talking about him a bunch over the course of the next few episodes, because next week, we'll kick off 2024 with the end of the War of the Fourth Coalition and the dawn of a new age of French domination over Europe.